This is Laura Roeder responding to the How Do You Manage Your Money episode. One big problem that I had with this episode was his implication that he loses money when you lose money, which is really just flat out not true. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Do it live. We're doing it live. Okay, so we're going to return to the subject matter of one of our recent shows. Received an awesome response in terms of comments from really smart listeners. We've got everything from positive, negative, critical, to everything in between. It's really cool. If you were going to start a podcast, Dan, I'd venture to say that it should be around this topic. Financially. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people get so riled up about this. I love it. Yeah. If you haven't yet listened to our interview with financial advisor, Joe Werbeck, the president of Sequinox. And by the way, Joe emailed me a few days ago with the subject line, wow, he was blown away by the response he received from the community and he participated in the comments as well. So thank you, Joe, for helping us to open up this conversation on this show. So what we wanted to do, Ian, is just do a follow-up show and talk about some of our ideas and the feedback we received from the listeners. Because that show, you know, we just interviewed Joe and asked him for his perspective. So I think it's time for us to weigh in a little bit. Yeah, we've gotten quite a few emails and I've had a couple in-person conversations saying, Ian, what do you think about this? And so let's give the people what they want. (laughs) What do we think about this? So first of all, we got a phone call from listener Laura Roeder. She's the founder of Meet Edgar. And we're going to play a clip from her voicemail. By the way, I love receiving voicemails. This is an audio show after all, and you can leave us one at tropicalmba.com slash voicemail. Okay, so on to Laura Roeder. When a fund manager takes a percentage of your portfolio, the way it works is they take 1% of the total value. Joe is welcome to correct me if I'm wrong. So the way it generally works is if you have 500K, but your portfolio has dropped to 400K, you are going to pay out 1% of that 400K. You've lost 100,000 of the value, but it's not like the fund manager loses money too. You're just paying them less, but you're still paying them 1% of that lesser amount of money, sort of adding insult to injury for you. Ian, before we jump in and give our thoughts, I thought it'd be cool if we read some of the other comments that we received on last week's episode. So the first one from Mark is an investment analyst. He said, active versus passive debate shouldn't be a pissing contest. It's refreshing to hear something other than the wealth front slash betterment approach is great for a lot of people. I like it. It's generally what I would recommend to family or friends if we have a 60-second conversation on investing. But the thing is, most people that have jumped on the passive bandwagon haven't seen a market correction or downturn. This is where financial advisors can be beneficial for most, in my opinion. Managing the emotions and perhaps having a more tactical approach isn't 100% long all the time. I'd even suggest that wealthier entrepreneurs should pay someone solely for advice and consultations, like a therapist, even if they refer 
refuse to invest their money with a financial advisor. By the way, this is the argument that a handful of my wealthy friends have given me is that the financial therapy that they get from their financial advisors makes it worth it alone. Someone said that to me the other day too. They said, if all you do is pay this person 1% to convince you not to sell when the market's down, it will be worth it. (laughs) We got another comment from Egan. Long-time listener, first time calling bullshit. Wait a second. Wait a second. Can I step in here? Yes. Really, Egan? I think he's just being nice. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it, though. Thank you for listening to the show. And thank you for taking the time to call bullshit as well. I mean, we're learning here, too. It's how he feels. Yeah. I appreciate it. I think on our podcast, you could probably call bullshit more often. (laughs) In fact, I would encourage that because it sparks debates like this. So Egan says, your guest failed to meet the challenge of buying and holding index funds at a fraction of its expense ratio. Read John Bogle's Common Sense on Mutual Funds and A Random Walk Down Wall Street for what it is essentially the consensus among academics who study this. Yeah. And there was also a lot of comments in this vein as well. So we've got a lot of different perspectives on the table and many more here to come. But I think before we get into this, we thought we'd share a little bit about how we're going to spend the coin we've got burning in the bank from selling our business. That's right. Decided to talk a little bit about what we're actually going to do with all this information. And just to say that it's been awesome to speak with Joe and more recently, Mr. Money Mustache and so many of the listeners of this show, because it really is a massive learning curve just to wrap your head around how to think think about investing your money. By the way, Dan, this show, if you guys want to follow the comment thread, will be over at tropicalmba.com forward slash investments follow up. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Enough talk. Have you reached any conclusion about your investment strategy, Mr. Bossman? The audience wants to know. (laughs) Oh, man. This is such a complicated issue. I'll tell you one of my strategies as of late. Moved to Austin about a year and a half ago. Previously, I was based loosely out of San Diego and would travel kind of in and out of there. What ended up happening to me essentially was I blinked and I had been there 10 years. And I think what I realized was if I had bought real estate in San Diego when I had first gotten there, by the time I left, I would have been a wealthier person. I think for me, Austin is going to be a home base for a while now. And so I went ahead and actually this week plunked down on a house. Really? Believe it or not, yes. That's shocking. So here's the way I'm looking at this. Real estate in Austin isn't a great investment vehicle, but I do think it's an interesting place to hold your money. Here's the issue, I think, with this kind of investment, Dan, is that a lot of people see homes as good investments. I don't think they're that great of investments. I think that you can get, as our listeners know, a much better return in your business and in some cases, even in the stock market. Honestly, what I'm looking at here is somewhere between a 3 and 5% increase, if I'm lucky, on a year-over-year basis. So why are you doing it? Because the opportunity that it affords. So the spreadsheet isn't the one talking here. Correct. I don't want to lose money, but I don't stand to gain a lot. But what I do stand to gain is a place to essentially rest my head and not have to worry about getting kicked out or conditions changing because I own this piece of property. The interesting part there is you get to invest in a home and a home means something potentially much bigger than a piece of property. I mean, we've talked about that on the show that a home can mean many, many different things to different people. 
Yes. And there's an asset there that's ineffable. It's an asset, exactly. And it's a class of asset. And I say the same thing in the cars that I invest in, Dan. As you know, I've got a little collection over here. Nothing too special or anything like that, but it is a different color to keep my money in, if you know what I mean. All right. So you're going to buy a home. I'm going to buy a home. Yes. And what percentage of your net worth do you think is your tolerance to buy such an asset? It's a good question. You know, I think it depends on your risk profile. And I also think it depends. So here's the thing about real estate in the United States that I think is worth noting, and it's the same as the stock market, is it hasn't gone down, like basically ever in any measurable amount. I mean, it has dips, right? But then it always comes back up. And I don't necessarily think that that's sustainable in the long term. I think that a lot of things are going to change. I think that more people in America, especially, are moving into cities. So I think it'll be more expensive in cities. And we might see a decrease in home and land prices outside of cities. But historically speaking, these numbers have always gone up. I think in the past, I had really refuted that kind of idea, right? It's like, how can it possibly always go up? And I think people that believe in black swans are are thinking the same thing. Like, yeah, that's great that it's always gone up, but a black swan event hasn't happened. You know what I mean? Do you want to describe what a black swan event is? A black swan event would be like something that entirely wipes out the market that no one was able to foresee that wasn't in any of the financial forecasting, anything like that. For example, like it gets so hot in the United States because of climate change that you just can't live in Texas. That would be like a black swan occurring to the real estate market here in Texas. And I think that these things are totally possible. I don't know if it's still a black swan if you can say what the chances are of Fair enough. (laughs) I think in general with this home thing, I think my tolerance has... I've accepted a little bit more that I can hold money there for, I don't know, at least five years. That's the other thing too with this investment is that it's a longer term investment. And you know, the older we get, Dan, I think the more opportunity we have to see into the future. Like I was living very much in front of my face in my 20s. And now that I'm in my 30s, I'm like, well, yeah, I could see myself holding on to a property for five years, which was like totally unacceptable in my 20s. And that's why I didn't buy real estate in San Diego because I was like, well, there's no way I just move around too much. This is ever going to work out. But there's a lot of options, right? So when you buy a home like this, you could put it on Airbnb. It could be vacant as long as it's appreciating. I think there's a lot of options, if you know what I mean. It sounds like what you're saying is like, this is not a good investment, but it's probably not a horrible investment. It's somewhere very much in the middle. So then my question is, why do it at all? It's a good question. In terms of investments, I think you're right. It's not a great investment, as in it's not going to return 10 to 20% year over year. But that's rare that you find an investment that will do that for you. But what it does for me and what I'm interested in is cost-neutral living situation. So I want to be able to live there and have the appreciation of the property essentially pay for my rent. Hold up a second. I know you better than this. So take off your button up, take off your accounting hat, put on your backwards mesh cap baseball and a T. You're pissed off about paying rent, right? That's one thing. Did I mention this new property has a thousand square foot shop on it? Exactly. (laughs) So, I mean, part of this is just, this is something you want, right? You want a home. You want Fort Ian. Yes. That you can run a flag up the pole and say, this is mine. I think it will be cool, but I'm going to be totally honest with you. I think it's cool because I believe I can do it for cost neutral. Right. And that's an important factor for me. Like I didn't go out and find a home that I couldn't afford. I could very much afford this house. I don't even have to have a mortgage on it if I don't want to have a mortgage on it, you know? And so for me, it only excites me because I know that I can afford it. Under what circumstances would you take out a mortgage on a house? That's an interesting question. So I actually am... I'm a part-time interviewer. Yeah. I actually am considering (laughs) taking out a mortgage on this home. Okay. And I'll tell you the reason why I'm considering doing that. First of all, 
I just want to talk about this for a minute. As someone that's unemployed or <laughs> unemployable, some may say, it was very difficult for me to qualify for a mortgage, which I think is interesting because I have a lot of friends that are employed that could lose their job tomorrow that the bank is willing to give them hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the key reason for that is their mortgages are a more marketable asset on the secondary market. Yeah. Essentially. So because I don't have traditional income and whatnot, the bank is willing to finance me, but they're going to keep the loan in-house. Most people, they'll sell the loan on a secondary market, and that's the way that it works. For me, it's a little bit different because they see me as a higher risk profile, which I think is very interesting, but probably something that's not worth going into detail. But what is worth talking about is the idea of this mortgage. So I have very little credit history because I've had very little debt in my life. And that also makes it hard to lend to me, believe it or not, in this country, because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not experienced at owing people money, I suppose. But here's the reason why I think I'm going to take the loan is because I want to build some of that history with the bank. And also, I want to keep my options open. When I say options, I mean, I can terminate this loan at any time. I think that I'll probably terminate it in the first couple of years, but I want to be able to get into this place, have a little bit more cash available for other investments like businesses and whatnot, and not be locked into it. Right. So it's kind of like, you know how much the loan is costing you. And so you're creating this other pain point and you put a bunch of money into the mortgage, but then sort of see how you feel six months down the road. Exactly. Yeah. And if other opportunities come up, because I think this is the entrepreneur's dilemma and we go through it, I think on a daily basis, like, well, I want to be able to have this cash. Most of us probably, by the way, probably can't relate on the front of the mortgage because that we're talking big dollars there, but we probably can relate with our student loans. We've probably all done this yeah. math. <laughs> if you've gone to college where you look at your student loans and you look at your interest rate and you're kind of like, oh, just keep the money. Uh, I'll just pay monthly. Exactly. You look at the dollar amount and it's not big, but what it does do is it affords you to be able to invest in other opportunities. So Dan, we talk about this a lot. I think that the market is probably going to tank after the election. That would be my prediction. And when that happens, I want to be in a position, in a cash position that I can pay up assets for cheap, right? Because I believe that it will go down and then it will probably go up again. And so you have to be in a position where you can be an opportunist, right? All right. So you're going to buy Fort Ian, which will hopefully thereafter become a character on this show or at least a live location. Yes. There's got to be some kind of recording apparatus there. <laughs> it's got a little bit of land. So what I'm thinking about here is a tent party. Invite 100 of our closest friends and we just all pitch tents. Yeah. What do you think? I like this as a financial backstop for me, too, because if everything goes wrong, I just pitch a tent in your backyard. The home thing should become a storyline on this show. Sure. Because I think it's fascinating. You know, I wrote this article about us. I was thinking about us. I kind of thought about what I would write if I had to write an article, which I haven't been writing much lately for reasons that we'll reveal shortly. The title was sort of like we sold our business and instantly went crazy because we both bought cars. You're buying a house, you know, like... I got a year lease. All these things that are certainly a departure for a lot of the topics we cover on the show. And I think what I thought, Ian, is that, you know, everybody wants a home and everybody wants an adventure. Both of those things are extraordinarily expensive to maintain. And so a lot of times what happens when people say, you know, there's all these stories on the internet when certainly we've talked about it. You sell everything, you put everything into a backpack and you take off and you have this adventure where you live in different countries over the course of many years. Look, that's amazing. And it's extremely expensive. I mean, most most people, if they can even achieve it in the first place, certainly can't do it with a home on the other side of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
And so I think what happens is you've been on this journey for so long is that you want a home, you want the adventure. And if you play your cards right, you can try to get both at the same time. Well, you can. And I think that that's what I'm trying to achieve too. And so I think that that speaks to the price of the home that you can afford, right? Right. If you go out and max it out and spend 75% of your net worth on this home, there's a good chance that you're not going to be able to travel and that you are going to become dependent again on your business and you're going to have to do things that you don't want to do. And I think the plan is to continue to have autonomy. Exactly. That's like the fundamental thing. Your autonomy in your life too. I mean, that's why when we first turned on the mics over six years ago, home was a pair of nice headphones, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. <laughs> because that was something that we could own without a loan and focus on building accruing assets. That's what I want. Your love gives me such a thrill. But your love won't pay my bills. I want money. I want to talk about your investment strategy because this is something that I never would have guessed that you'd do. I do some secret stuff, man, sometimes. What did you do? All right. You just did it, first, and then you just said it like it was no big deal. And I was like, bro, that's a big deal. Well, I'll tell you what. So first thing, I want to talk about the most underappreciated uh, investment strategy, which I think is nothing. Nothing. You do not need to do things. There's this insane push by the financial industry as a whole to, quote, do stuff with your money. Yeah. To buy a home, to put it in the market, to buy an index fund, to get a mutual fund. And they will make you believe, generally speaking, that this is de rigueur or that this is unassailable, common knowledge, 100% your money needs to be working for you. And I read an article by Mark Cuban, a billionaire, a few years ago that said that he doesn't agree with that at all. And in fact, your money doesn't need to be working for you and it can work for you when you just have it. You just mentioned, for example, that you're expecting that there will be an adjustment in the market. Well, of course there is. There's always going to be one. So why not have money around so that you have options when that happens? And of course, you're implying that when it happens, you're going to make an investment. So then at that point, you will be invested and maybe not in cash. But I think what you're saying is invest at the right points. You know, investment has a broader connotation, which is things that you're interested in, you know, and having cash can give you the opportunity to get involved in those things when the timing comes up to you. You're not going to know all the opportunities like right away. You know, sometimes you just have to wait for things to come up or for you to meet certain people or to see certain things. To me, it doesn't make any sense at all. A very typical strategy would be to take all of your cash and just buy a bunch of essentially stocks of other companies, right, with them. I'm making up a straw man investment. I'm not saying that people are advocating this necessarily. You know, I just think that that's a risky strategy and it's not one that I'm interested in. What are you interested in? I've asked you three times now. (laughs) (laughs) So what I'm interested in is, okay, so there's three elements to it. The first element would be having cash in the bank to cover your ass. This is what Dave Ramsey would call your security fund. And I think this changes depending on you know where you're at in life and what your goals are, where you're at. My friend Joe Magnotti from the Empire Flippers actually said it a little bit better in the comments of our last episode. So I'll just read his comment. He said, I think most entrepreneurs would be better suited sitting on nine to 12 months runway plus startup costs for their next venture. This could be in the range of 60K to 100K for even small one-man bank type operations. Putting this capital at risk, even in, quote, relatively safe investments, makes me very apprehensive. Okay, I agree with that. That's my personal feeling. I agree with what Joe's saying there, which is, you know, for Joe, he's saying 60 to 100K might make sense. This number is going to range widely, but I'd like to point out how, you know, that's a big number. 
Let me quote him one more time. Annuities or other type of drip feed accounts that penalize you heavily for early withdrawal are not set up for guys like us. That said, a big windfall from the sale of your business should be protected tax-wise. However, you need that safety net in place, in my humble opinion. Traditional advice would be like to take your first $100,000 of savings and invest it in long-term investments, Ian. Is that fair enough categorization of traditional advice? Mm -hmm. I think that for entrepreneurs and for myself personally, I would take this advice, which is to put aside that $100,000 in something that is the cash or cash equivalent that can be accessed immediately and that you can utilize as your next startup or as a runway. That's the first part. Got to have cash in the bank. Second part, what sort of investments do I seek? I seek what I would call anti-fragile investments. Go on. So what I'm looking for, and I don't have one yet, aside from some of those things that we're doing, would be to invest less than 10% of your net worth in a volatile, quote, volatile early stage asset. So like some kind of startup situation where it has the opportunity to 10x, 100x, something like that. And you can get in kind of on the ground floor early. That's right. Look, I know people who do things like this, Ian. So let me just construct a hypothetical for you. We know about e-commerce. There's an e-commerce entrepreneur out there who you know, just established product market fit, but they don't have any money for inventory. They don't have management or entrepreneur experience. So what you do, you come to the table, you take a large amount of equity for a cash infusion for inventory and for a board position or an ownership stake even. I probably wouldn't do it for less than 51%. But anyway, so you come into the asset, you put a small amount of money in relative to your net worth, and you provide guidance to the entrepreneur. And yeah, that's an incredible upside opportunity. One of the things that Venkat said a few episodes ago when we were talking about the philosophy of business is he said, the reason being an entrepreneur is such an appealing economic position is that for many people, it's the only time they'll ever have an opportunity to invest in an early stage startup. And I think for people like us, Ian, I think we can manufacture that opportunity for ourselves. So why would I take a big percentage of my net worth and buy what is essentially a bunch of large companies based in the U.S. or other big country and say that I believe that these large companies in this country are going to continue to have the marginal slow upward march and I'm going to benefit in that? over the long term. I just don't like that strategy. You know, this is part of the reason everybody debates this is so anecdotal is that when I meet wealthy people, that's not how they got wealthy. I think you're right. And I think it's true. But if you look at the graph and you look at the trend, and this is what I was talking about housing in the US and the stock market, it's always gone up. And you can't argue with that fact that it's always gone up. But you can argue and say, those aren't the kinds of investments that I'm interested in, whether it's because you think it's going to fail eventually, whether because you don't believe in the US economy, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that's what you're saying is like, I fully believe that this isn't going to work out in the long run, although it has performed well in the past. Right. I think that's fair. And now the third point, the final point. And we're in the fortunate position to be able to do this. I took a percentage of my net worth that I feel comfortable with. It's a low percentage. Okay. And I did the right thing with it. And I'm going to put the right thing into quotations. (laughs) (laughs) I love the right thing. Yeah. I put it into these long-term index funds that everybody talks about as being super safe. And a lot of people criticized because there was a commenter, David, commented and said, you know, tell that to the Japanese who invested in similar things and it didn't work out for them. What happens if the US dollar is no longer the global currency 15 years from now? Is that unthinkable? 
So it's interesting, the rate thing, you know, you put some money into index funds, I put some money into US real estate. And it is interesting, because I do think in the traditional sense, it is the right thing. And I think historically, you and I have kind of wanted to buck that trend of doing the right thing. But you sell your business, you end up with a little bit of money, you say, it's like when the office goes and buys a lottery ticket, right? You're like, of course, I'm going to buy a lottery ticket, because I'm not going to be the only (laughs) one sitting here when you guys win the lottery. Right. And I think that there's a little bit of that mentality going on with us these days, Dan. And it's like, once you run into a little bit of money, yeah, I'll buy into that system a bit, but I will not overextend myself. Let me just circle back to the beginning here and the question of, should you go and hire an advisor for these things? Because look, I think the number one way to screw up all of this is to abdicate your responsibility to be in charge of it. And if you're going to an advisor or some other firm so that you quote, don't need to think about it so that you can set it and forget it so that you don't need to know what's happening, that doesn't make any sense to me. If you're going to take advantage of a financial advisor, the whole point should be that you're educating yourself, that you're getting a fuller view of what's happening with your finances and your money. So that's basically my view in general is I don't feel like I know everything right now. So I don't feel like I need to deploy all of my assets all at once. I'm going to continue to learn, continue to meet people, continue to discuss and continue to make small investments that I can learn from. I think that that's my overall strategy. Then that comes back to what's your biggest investment? It's your time. How do you spend your time? That's what it all comes back to for me. The reason I think having runway and capital in the bank is that that ensures that you have time. Yeah. And there's another theme that I think is coming through for me, at least talking this out with you, which is freedom. Money to me represents freedom. And that's the way I view these investments. You know, Do I get to keep my freedom while trying to make some of these investments? And I think the answer for me always has to be yes. Like I don't want to make any financial decision that will A, cause me to have a job, B, cause me to do things on a daily basis that I don't want to do. The C, the final thing that would be that anchors you to projects that you don't care about. You know, that's another thing is like being careful if you're going to do a higher touch investment, so to speak, that it's got to be really fun. You know what I mean? It can't just be like, well, this is going to be something that's going to make me more money. Because if you take that route in life, you're going to end up miserable. I mean, that's what a lot of people do. I mean, that's the whole point why we started this thing in the first place is so that we can do things that we think are cool. That sort of investment to me sounds like a job that you hate, but it pays well. Yep, absolutely. Let's get back out of the heads of me and you. Part of the purpose of that is just to share that we're just two guys like learning about this stuff. We don't understand investing necessarily. But that doesn't mean that we're not making investing decisions. So a few other issues that Laura Roeder, who at the top of the show, brought up that I wanted to talk about. One of the things she didn't like about the show was the implication that financial advisors lose money when you lose money. So there's a couple models out there. This 1% fee, I think, is some kind of step up from what it used to be, if I understand properly. Sure. I mean, but financial advisors for a long period of time, and many still do make commissions off of the financial products that they recommend to you. Right. So some might say, like, this is like the white knight approach, right? I only take 1% of your investment. Sure. When you lose money, no, you still have to pay the 1%. But that 1% is less than it would have been if you made a lot of money. So there's a distinction between, like, losing potential money that they could could have had versus losing money that's in their bank account. Correct. Ideally, I guess like in a perfect world, you'd want a financial advisor who would actually like lose their money in their bank account. Yes. But I don't know a model that exists like that. 
even with the large scale computer firms, they're still taking a fee for investing your money for you. And how can it exist if someone's spending their time advising you? Correct. But there are other models where the investor does share in the risk. You go in on a big commercial real estate project and the developer has skin in the game. If you're interested in the one pulling together the deal or pulling together the plan, having skin in the game, maybe these are the types of deals that you should have an appetite for. Okay, so Ian, you have a few thoughts about why people have so many thoughts about this. Why people are pissed. Well, not all of them are pissed. (laughs) I think a lot of people are are passionate about this topic. I think we're passionate about this topic. But I think part of the reason why people are upset is because it's a good thing. The tools are becoming more legible for this type of stuff. And it's interesting to think about, Dan. I'm not sure, you know, this industry, a couple others that I can think about are law. I'm not sure how long these industries are still going to be around in the same capacity that they have been in the past because because the tools are so legible. And I think a lot of people will say to you, like, this is very complicated stuff. There's no way that you could understand this. You have to hire a professional. But I think with the rise of the internet and information becoming available to you, I think that that's becoming less and less true. I actually just disagree with that. I disagree with that because that assumes, for example, okay, just because Betterment exists and it's made the stock market more legible, there are many other investment vehicles being created every day. And having someone to help you manage the complexity is always going to be a potential asset. Just because one thing gets simplified, I think that that always implies that another thing has emerged. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. I think the reasons are more psychological because the first thing is that these things are unfalsifiable. Yeah. You can argue indefinitely, and it's difficult to back people up with facts. Like, even an argument from historical precedent isn't ultimately compelling in the world of investments, right? Mm-hmm. And people called that the survivor's bias. Like, yeah, you can say all day long that the American stock market has continued to grow over the last 100 years. Does that mean that it's going to continue to grow over the next 20? Absolutely not. It does not mean that at all. You can still say it all day long. And you can say the same thing about your track record and experience, by the way. Yeah. I think what it does is it allows people to come out of the woodwork and share their perspectives. It doesn't mean that their perspectives aren't valuable or interesting. It just means that there can be a lot of them. Sure. (laughs) Because you can't squash them with data necessarily. Sure. And so I think ultimately it comes down to finding a way to be able to navigate it for yourself. And I think part of what me and you are going to be doing here at the show and with our lives is focusing a lot on investing, you know, thinking more about it because it's a real problem for people. You know, and I think part of the reason why we talk about the stock market so much is that product, so to speak, the product of the stock market, it solves a problem for people. This problem of how do I make my money go to work for me? Yeah. And in a lot of ways, like what we've done on this show over the past six years is talked about how do you make your time go to work for you and how do you make your mobility go to work for you? And I think that there's one currency that we've not talked about much, and that's how do you make your money go to work for you? And to Cuban's point, and not to undermine this whole thing here, but sometimes you just don't have to have it work for you. And I think that that's been our approach as of late, and it's changing. Absolutely. So I look forward to kind of talking about the ways in which it's changing for us. in life for free but you can give them to the birds and bees i want money First off, if we didn't get to your comment on this episode, got completely sidetracked by the breaking news that Bossman is buying the future spot of the Tropical NBA annual jamboree. Yeah. Tent jamboree party. Can't get in unless you got a 26-2 sticker on your car, by the way. 
I think it's worth mentioning that the comments at tropicalmba.com slash investments were outstanding and thought-provoking, and we're definitely thinking about them. And it, I really feel like this is going to be a threat on the show going forward. So um, it's so cool to see so many intelligent members of the community weighing in, giving us ideas. We'll be following up on them. I also think it was not a bad idea to just see where we're at with this stuff personally in terms of what we're actually doing. Yeah, I think it's good to check up every once in a while. And I'm happy to put out into the world what I'm up to and get some critiques on that as well. Speaking of critiques of Bossman's predilection for home buying, this one will be at tropicalmba.com slash investment follow-up. And thank you for all your comments. This will not be the last investment follow-up. Cool. So we'll follow up with the show next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Cool. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.